This is the word of the Lord. Please join me in prayer. Holy God, we thank you for bringing us back to this holy story during the season of Lent. We pray that you would help us to hear it anew today through the inside of your Holy Spirit. And may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Well, happy mid-Lent, everyone. This season, we are following Jesus to the cross with an emphasis on the last week of his ministry, Holy Week. We started with Jesus' condemnation of empire economics a few weeks ago, then considered his being anointed as king at a dinner party of the poor. And in today's story, we find him again at another dinner party because, you know, Jesus liked to eat. So now it's Thursday of Holy Week, the beginning of the festival of the Passover, and Jesus is celebrating with his disciples what will later be called the Last Supper. This is the main story that we base our sacrament of the Eucharist on, when Jesus said that the bread is his body and the the wine is his blood, that he would be sacrificed for the sins of many. There's a lot going on in this familiar scene. So much symbolism and theological significance that we continue to call it a a mystery. No matter how many times we come back to it, we'll probably never understand it all completely. So today I just want to focus on one aspect that the Gospel of Mark also seems to emphasize, which is the presence of Judas at the table. The way the story goes in Mark's version is is that the disciples are first given specific instructions for finding a semi-private location for the Passover meal. It would be like the equivalent of looking for last-minute group reservations for Thanksgiving dinner. So it's kind of a minor miracle that they do find a space. This time, there is room in the inn, in an upper room. And this this was an intentional gathering of his closest disciples So then the focus becomes Jesus' guest list. Once the 12 disciples are seated around the table and food is being served, Jesus drops a bombshell. He says to them, you know, one of you is going to betray me. One of you who is here eating with me. There's no explanation in the story as to how this topic comes up in conversation which is kind of strange. Jesus seems to be going out of his way to make a point. It reminds me of a a murder mystery where the detective gets all the suspects together in one room for the big reveal. One of you sitting here is the murderer. And then there are gasps all around. What? Surely not me. One of us here? And one by one, they all profess innocence. Well, I know it's not me. It couldn't have been me. Surely not I. I notice that in this biblical story, at least, the disciples don't turn on each other, as people often do in the movies. It's common to deflect guilt by blaming someone else, as in, it's, that, it's Thomas, isn't it? I knew that guy was crooked. But no, to their credit, Jesus' disciples, they don't do that. Maybe they've been with Jesus long enough to know that Self-righteousness doesn't really fly with him. 
And Jesus has set these disciples straight often enough to know that they are well aware of their own shortcomings anyway. Besides, Jesus seems to know them better than they know themselves even. So I imagine there's also concern in the room at that point, more so than indignation. As in, it's not me, is it Jesus? Surely I'm not going to be the one. Only Jesus doesn't, doesn't set the disciples at ease either, which is also surprising. Usually at this point in the Agatha Christie murder mystery scenario, the detective or investigator or whoever goes down the line and clears people one by one. Yes, it's someone in this room, but no, it's not you, Thomas. If you'd wanted to betray me, you could have done it back in Galilee. And it's not you either, Matthew. Everyone may think you're a crook, but I have looked in your heart and found no deceit. No, again, that's not how the story goes. Jesus doesn't clear any of these 12 disciples either. And yet, he doesn't finger Judas for the crime. Which is also curious. We may wonder if Jesus knew that it was Judas specifically who was stealing from the offering plate. Or if Jesus had just narrowed it down to one of these 12 disciples. Did Jesus know that Judas had been conspiring with the religious officials behind his back? Or was he just sure that betrayal was inevitable and that one of these 12 friends of his would eventually crack under pressure? The story doesn't say. Instead, Jesus simply emphasizes how this betrayer is one of the 12 people who's dipping the bread in the same bowl that they are all sharing together. Sharing common food. It's an intimate betrayal. And a terrible one. The kind of betrayal that will haunt that person forever. The kind of sin that makes that person feel as though he or she should never have been born. It's chilling what Jesus says. What an uncomfortable moment at a dinner party. And yet, unfortunately, it's, it's probably not an unfamiliar experience either. I mean, betrayal, that is. I don't know about you, but for me, the very word conjures up a host of really, really bad memories. Like when you find out that someone has been talking about you behind your back. Maybe that a, a confidence was broken. Or perhaps you, you trusted someone to stand with you, to stand up for you. And he or she did the opposite. You felt abandoned, rejected, taken advantage of. Betrayal takes all kinds of miserable forms, especially in intimate relationships. It's not fun to think about, let alone to confront. And so what most people do when faced with betrayal is distance themselves from the betrayer. You don't want to have anything to do with that person after what she or he did 
depending on the severity of the offense, maybe, maybe you'll continue to interact on a surface level at arm's length. But once trust is broken, it's really hard to rebuild. And most people never do. And sadly, this is, this is often how it goes when we ourselves are accused of betrayal by others, too. Which also seems to, to happen a lot. Maybe it's inevitable. How other people feel betrayed by us despite our best efforts or intentions. We all say and do things that unintentionally violate the trust of others. And when we're accused, we, like the disciples, usually don't think of it that way. We, too, tend to say, surely not I. I was trying to do the right thing. It was for the greater good. I had no choice. So one interesting theory of Judas, why he did all this, is that maybe he thought he was doing Jesus a favor by selling him out to the authorities. After all, Jesus was always saying that he was going to Jerusalem to be executed. He reminded them again and again that this was, this was why he was there, to give his life as a sacrifice for many. So maybe Judas was just following what he thought was the plan. Fulfilling what he thought was his role in the divine drama. No one really knows what was going through Judas's mind. But I suspect that he did justify himself somehow, just like we all do. And whether we are right or wrong, the effects do tend to be the same. There is judgment and distancing and sometimes emotional cutoff. The relationship is broken and that is a terrible, terrible thing. And yet the good news of today's story is that this is not the pattern with Jesus. It's not. Instead, amazingly, in this story and others, the betrayer continues to be welcome at the table. Judas is still there, you see, eating from the same bowl, taking the same bread and the same cup that Jesus says are His body and His blood. One of the last lessons for these 12 disciples is what it looks like to love one's betrayer to the very end. And it appears as though the way of Jesus involves continuing to have dinner with enemies. Even when we know they're going to betray us. Isn't that crazy? I mean, think about all the people who have betrayed you in the past. How many of them would you like to have over for dinner? And I'm thinking those people didn't even try to kill you, did they? <laughs> this alone is a, is a very radical aspect of our faith. And at the same time, it is so very basic. Ordinarily, again, we turn away from those who we don't trust. We try to get as much distance from them as possible. 
The greater the risk, the greater the distance. Like, like dictators who are afraid of being assassinated, they often end up eating alone and having their food t- tested lest someone try to poison them during a shared meal. And yet here we see Jesus, a wanted man, eating out of the same bowl as someone he knows is going to turn him over to be executed. Instead of turning away from his betrayer, Jesus turns toward him. And it's not even a one-time thing. It's important to remember that in spite of the name, this is not really Jesus' last meal He then rises from the dead to eat with his disciples again and again. And Judas isn't even the only one of these twelve who betrays him. All the others deny and abandon Jesus too in various ways. Just like we do. So the Lord's table then becomes the place where God overcomes betrayal again and again, and again. Not just for Judas, but for all of us. When we stop turning away on account of our many sins, and instead turn towards God and towards one another, this is what we mean when we say that all are welcome at the table. It's a radical welcome that can overcome even the greatest of offenses. I love how very practical and concrete this good news is. Hopefully the implications for communion are obvious. During the passing of the peace each week before we take of the bread and the cup, we're meant to reconcile with our brothers and sisters with whom we may have become estranged during the week. If there's someone in worship that we feel like we want to avoid, that's exactly the person that God wants us to seek out during our brief handshaking session or fist-bumping session or whatever it is. If we want to greet our friends, too, that's fine, but, but the purpose of the passing of the peace is reconciliation in Christ. To turn towards one another with a spirit of forgiveness and love. After we've confessed together and received God's forgiveness together, we then share the peace of Christ with one another so that we can dine together, especially with those who have done us wrong or who might do us wrong in the future. Unfortunately, there isn't time in the service to have a long heart-to-heart and make amends during the passing of the peace, but that's okay Because the words we've been given to share are sufficient as a beginning. The peace of Christ be with you. A mutual recognition that we are all welcome at the table because of Christ. Betrayer and betrayed. The perceived offender and the highly offended. Therefore, why should there be any hard feelings among us? This is one small way that God helps us to let go of bitterness and ill will on a weekly basis. Does it mean that everything's instantly forgiven? Of course not. 
but it's a starting point. Communion is only a foretaste of what is to come. So why stop with the the formal sacrament? Why not also invite our enemies to a full-on dinner like Jesus did in this story? There's a good reason why so many stories of Jesus involve Him going to dinner parties and feeding crowds and having barbecues on the beach. There's something that happens when we eat together. Edges soften. Trust is rebuilt. We find ways of making conversation. We're sometimes forced to listen to each other even if it's just while we're chewing. It doesn't doesn't mean becoming BFFs with our betrayers. Jesus certainly didn't make light of what what Judas was about to do. And yet this is a way that we can love our enemies and do good to those who do us wrong. Maybe if we dine with them often enough, we can even grow to forgive them as Jesus did on the cross. Praying, forgive them, Father, for they they don't know what they're doing. Then we also can rest assured knowing that God forgives us as we've forgiven those who have sinned against us. God will forgive us for all the sins and betrayals that we're not even aware of. One final note I want to make about this, this theme of inclusivity is an ecumenical one, since some of you are probably aware that the openness of the table is is a contentious issue between some churches. Within the Presbyterian Church USA, there's, there's some disagreement about whether communion should be open to everyone or only to those who have been baptized. My personal preference, based on this story and ones like it, is to allow anyone to take communion since Jesus was willing to eat with anyone, including people who he, he knew were going to betray him. For me, this is central to the gospel of grace. As far as I'm aware, Jesus never excommunicated anyone or refused to eat with them, even Judas. So we as his followers, I think, should also practice radical hospitality And this time of year, I love reaching out to our brothers and sisters in the Catholic Church, even though I know that they don't share my perspective on an official level, even though I know I'm not officially welcome to take communion at a Catholic Mass, I always look for opportunities to invite them to dinner and welcome them to Jesus' table in this place, not so that they would cease being Catholics, but so that the outdated enmity between our churches would someday be overcome. I don't think Jesus really cares who betrayed who once upon a time. We have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So I hope and pray that we all would be forgiven, restored, and reconciled sharing the peace of Christ with one another in the kingdom of God for the life of the world. Amen?